All right, so when we last saw Jesus in Luke chapter 3, he was being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Luke told us here that when he came out of the water, the heavens opened up and the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. In that very moment, he heard God's voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Talk about radical baptism. But be aware of this fact. After a high time of spiritual refreshment, often comes a spiritual crucible. On the heels of triumph, adversity often follows. Well, here now, as we begin chapter 4, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at how Jesus endured the difficulties of temptation and rejection after having received his Heavenly Father's affirmation and approval. Now, today, we'll be examining how three tests of temptation prove that he was the right man with the appropriate background the proper credentials, and a desirable experience for the ministry that he was about to begin. What I hope this message shows you overall is that as a Christian, as a believer, throughout your Christian walk, you will often be tested. Not only in in that, in just your walk, but also as he prepares you for the ministry. If, if that's your heart, is just to be part of a ministry or just be part of the, just move up in leadership in ministry, you will often be tested. Now, he does this so that you'll learn how to rely on him and his, wor- and his word rather than your own knowledge, your own strength, and your own abilities. You see, the Lord wants to see He wants to gauge how much you've grown by seeing how you'll handle Satan's attacks and whether you'll be able to stand up to him, whether you'll be able to tell him, nope, not today, devil. So before we begin reading, let's ask the Lord to to speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you again for another wonderful morning here at Fresh Vision Church. Lord, you know what's going on in each one of our hearts. You know the struggles that we're dealing with. You know the the hardships. Lord, and, and many of us are here right now because we want to hear from you, Lord. We want to know why, Lord, why these things are going on. And there also may be people here that are just full of joy, Lord, and they want to praise you, continue to praise you through this time of study. Lord, so pour your spirit mightily upon this room. Open hearts and open minds. Open, also just open the hearts and minds of those who may be listening online, Lord. Hear this message and and hear you speak through it, Lord. Lord, we need, we ask that you meet us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Luke, we'll be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we'll be starting with verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. The Word of God says, Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, 
you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Now that Jesus had been baptized, his story takes center stage. The one coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire now followed the Spirit into the ministry. And his first stop was the wilderness, a place of loneliness and gloom. Outside the urban life of the city, outside the place where he grew up, where robbers and revolutionaries gathered, and where regular civilized people just completely avoided. And it is here where Jesus was led by the Spirit to his encounter with the devil. Now the role of the Holy Spirit here is significant for at least three reasons. The Spirit's role in driving Jesus to the wilderness shows Jesus' face-off with the devil was ordained by God. The Spirit's activity is, re- is a repeated emphasis in Luke's gospel. And thirdly, the Spirit's involvement in Jesus' Jesus' life highlights Jesus' genuine humanity. His time there in that wilderness was long, and it was grueling, surviving 40 days without the things he was used to having for the past 30 years of his life, without friends, without family, without the fellowship, and without food. Only one other person followed him there, the devil. Mr. Temptation himself. There Jesus faced the slandering, tempting adversary for over a month with no one he could rely on to, to rely on to emotionally and physically help him. He didn't have anyone to just say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm hurting right now, he's attacking me, can you pray for me? It was just him. Him and the Lord, his Father. So he had no choice but to depend on spiritual strength. Now, we're also told that while he was there, he ate nothing during those days. Now, this wasn't something that he was required to do. It wasn't something that religiously he he was obligated to do. It was something that he chose to do. Now, why would he choose not to eat for 40 days? He did it to devote himself full-time to God's business and God's presence rather than to devote to satisfying his own personal needs. Ministry and devotion took top priority over physical hunger and self-satisfaction. But nevertheless, he was human. Because he was human, just like you and I, all of us then should understand that why it says in verse in that during those 40 days after those 40 days were over that he was hungry wouldn't you be wouldn't you be starving after 40 days of not eating and it was at this point after those 40 days that the devil attacks the attacks Jesus the hardest with three temptations this first one we see here we just finished reading would test the immediate needs of Jesus. The devil said, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Here, Satan wasn't doubting Jesus' identity, but was challenging him to display his identity by using his divine power to satisfy his bodily hunger. So the the temptation was basically this. Since you're the Messiah, 
you have a right to eat if you're hungry. So do yourself a favor and just make these rocks into bread. Now, the way he put it made it seem as though the act itself was perfectly legitimate. But the thing is, it would have been wrong for Jesus to do it in obedience to Satan. And uh, he wouldn't have acted in accordance to the will of his father. And notice that Jesus, that Jesus' response, the way he responded to him, it wasn't argumentative. And it wasn't inquisitive. All he did was he simply quoted what scripture said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man must not live on bread alone. What he was essentially saying was this. A person needs something much more substantial than bread. God supplies my needs. He's giving me what he knows I need, not what you try to trick me into thinking I need. I will listen to God's word, not your word. I will serve God, not self. Furthermore, Jesus was also putting the emphasis on the word man. You see, as, eter- as the eternal son of God, he had the power to do anything. But as the humble son of man, he only had the authority to do the father's will. Philippians 2 uh, verses 5 through 8 tells us that as the servant, Jesus didn't use his divine attributes for selfish purposes. Nevertheless, because he was man, he hungered, but he trusted the Father to meet his needs in his own time and his own way. Now, this first temptation is similar to the one Satan used in the Garden of Eden, and it has to do with the lust of the flesh. In Genesis 3 6, it says, The woman saw the tree, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Well, it's the same temptation that sets, that he, the devil, sets before you when he whispers, Don't you deserve a moment of satisfaction? A moment of pleasure? Why should anyone else, why should everyone else have the fun? Aren't you a child, child of God? Don't you think he wants you to experience life and be fulfilled? The author of the letter of, the letter of Hebrews was absolutely right when he said in chapter 11, verse 25, that there's pleasure in sin, in, in sin for a season. If you give in to the lust of the flesh, you'll, yeah, you'll indeed have pleasure for a season, for a moment. But in all reality, you'll experience pain for the rest of your life. If, on the other hand, you deny the flesh, you might experience pain for a moment, but you'll have joy and pleasure for the rest of your life. So you see, the choice is yours to tell the enemy, nope, not today, devil. Okay, so the devil couldn't get Jesus to separate the physical from the spiritual. So he pulls another trick out of his bag that he knows man easily falls for. Let's look at that now by picking it up in verse 5. Verse 5. Luke chapter 1, I mean Luke chapter 4, verse 5. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. 
If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In Matthew's Gospel, he places this temptation last, and he mentions that it's located on a high mountain. Now, why Luke reverses it and skips that detail is unknown. But since he never claimed to record these events in order, his focus more on the purpose rather than on the order and location. Plus, as we can see, as you can see, or if you look, even turn to Matthew, he's not contradicting Matthew at all. He's not contradicting Matthew whatsoever. So the second temptation begins with the devil taking Jesus to see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, in a moment of time, in a moment's time. Now, since there isn't a mountain high enough in that area to physically see all the kingdoms of the world, it may, this may have been more of a mental or spiritual vision. Nevertheless, what Jesus saw were all the present and, and maybe even and maybe even possibly the future kingdoms in a moment's time. This second temptation tested the strength of Jesus' focus, focus when he was at his weakest. First, the devil presents his offer, the splendor or the glory of those kingdoms and authority over them. Notice, though, that the devil didn't show our Lord the entire world. He didn't take him up, up in space and showed him the entire planet, but just the kingdoms that were in it. Now, why? Why did he just show him the kingdoms and not, not the planet, not the world? Because, you see, he can't give away something that doesn't belong to him. For example, I can take you over to my house and say, you can have whatever you want. You can come in and take, take it all. You can take my kid's skateboard. You can take my other kid's bed. You can take, what, take it all if you want to. You can have everything that's in my house. But I can't actually give you the house because I don't own it. The bank does. Similarly, the devil can offer what's in the world, but he can't give the world away because he doesn't own it. God created this world. He's the creator. He owns it. Second, the devil tells Jesus why he can make this offer. Because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Because of man's sin, Satan has become the ruler of, of the world, according to John twelve thirty one. The God of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And the ruler of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, 2. As such, he has a certain amount of delegated authority from God. Which, if you look in Revelation, will one day briefly share with the, Antichrist, with the Antichrist. But just for a brief time. We have to remember, though, that the, his authority and his power is only temporary. It says in Revelation 11.5 that God has purpose that the kingdom of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord of and of his Christ. So even though the offer of the devil may have seemed valid to Jesus, it was completely worthless. worthless. It didn't matter. It, it was nothing to him. It wasn't, it wasn't any, he, God already purposed, God already said it told him, this is going to belong all to you. 
He told Jesus, this will one day all be yours. He knew that's what was, that's what was going to happen. But the devil tried anyways and then gave him, and he gave him the conditions of his offer. So third, he tells him what he must do. If you worship me, all will be yours. All will be yours. What a tempting trade. Satan was offering Jesus not only the power to rule the world, but also a back door from the suffering that he'd eventually have to endure. All the son had to do was to give him one simple moment of worship. But, you see, our Savior knew that he couldn't, that there couldn't be a shortcut to the throne. The cross had to come first, and he'd have to suffer before he can enter his glory. He could not achieve a legitimate end by a wrong means. So under no circumstance, under no circumstances would he worship the devil, no matter what the prize might be. This second temptation was also used by Satan in the Garden of Eden and had to do with the lust of the eyes. Going back again to Genesis 3.6, it says, well, after she saw the tree, um, and saw that it was good. It also says there, uh, and that it was delightful to look at. The lust of the eyes doesn't refer only to looking at something that would tempt you to stimulate you to do wrong. The lust of the eyes is seeing any other way than God's to accomplish his purpose. When Satan, one of uh, the highest of all created angelic beings, was in heaven, his desire was to be worshipped. And that's what cast him out of heaven in the first place. And yet to this day, at this very moment, he still desires to be worshipped by whispering in your ear, just bow down to me and worship me. And I'll give you a new life. I'll give you the life you've always wanted. I'll give you the fame, the power, the glory. I'll give you the money. I'll give you all the women you want. I'll give you all the toys that you want. I'll give it all to you if you just give me a moment of worship. But what he doesn't tell you as he's whispering these things, he, what he doesn't tell you are the consequences that follow, the consequences that come along with just that one moment of worship. If you want to avoid this, if you want to avoid this temptation, the lust of the eyes, you must be willing to immediately tell the enemy Nope, not today, not today, devil. Stop whispering in my ear, not today. Therefore, as we can see, Jesus once again quotes scripture, scripture to show that God's word has a better way. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time, chapter 6, verse 13, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan said nothing about service. But Jesus knew that whatever we worship, we will serve. And who or what we serve ultimately has control over us. When we serve the Lord, yes, it may mean temporary suffering, but we'll always have freedom. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, will have eternal glory. 
However, serving the devil may start with glory. Yeah, you'll start with all these great things, but in all reality, again, you'll always be in bondage. And it'll only end in eternal suffering. Let me ask you, are you willing to give up the treasures that await you in God's kingdom for the passing treasures in this temporary kingdom? Jesus put it this way in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus here knew there was nothing at all worth giving up. There was nothing at all worth giving up his loyalty, his devotion, and his relationship with the Father. Here he showed us that even when we're at our weakest and when we're at our loneliest, we must find our strength and comfort in the truth and power of God's word. Okay, so far, we see that the devil tempted Jesus to rely on his own power to meet his immediate need to eat. When that didn't work, he tempted Jesus by showing him what he could offer him for a momentary act of worship. But once again, Jesus refused to take the bait. The devil, however, wouldn't give up. And he had one more trick up his sleeve that he knew, again, was pretty effective at getting people to listen to him. So let's read about that. Let's read about what that was and how it went by picking up in verse 9. Luke chapter 4, verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. This third and final temptation, the devil tested Jesus' trust in God to protect him from harm. The pinnacle of the temple where Jesus stood was more than likely a high point in the southeast corner of the temple. We're speaking about Herod's temple here. And probably a hundred feet above the rocky Kidron Valley. Now it's interesting that he would choose this location location since, since it symbolized the place where God dwelt and a place of protection for his people. So there, he dared Jesus to throw himself down by using scripture as proof that the Father would keep his promise to protect him. However, if you look at the passage he quoted from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, you can clearly see that he misquoted the promise and left out one important aspect of it, where it says in verse 11, in all your ways. Now, also up at that high point, perhaps Satan's intent was to tempt Jesus to present himself as the Messiah by performing some sensational stunt. Hey, Jesus, all kinds of people will come to hear you preach if you just dive off this temple and let the angels catch you. That, that'll convince them. 
That'll show them who you really are. Now, also, if, in case you're wondering, why didn't he just throw Jesus off the pinnacle? Why didn't he just shove him off? Well, the devil can't force his will on Jesus, nor can he make the Son of God do anything. All he can do is what we see him doing here. He can only suggest it. Once again, going back to Genesis 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some fruit and ate it, some of its fruit and ate it. This third temptation is a test John calls the pride of life in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and deals with the realm of the spirit and faith. As a child of God who's in the will of God, you can claim the Father's protection and care. And claim it's, it's, he's protecting you as, as one of his own, as one of his own children. He is watching over you. He is protecting you. He loves you. He's watching out for you. But here's the thing. If you willfully get in trouble and expect God to rescue you, then what you're actually doing is that you're tempted excuse me, is you're actually tempting him. We tempt God when we force him or we dare him to act contrary to God's word. It's a dangerous thing to, draw, to try God's patience. Even though he is indeed long-suffering and gracious with us. Faith is quietly waiting upon God, doing His will. Faith will require you to stand up to Satan and tell him, nope, not today, devil. So, do you understand what Satan wanted Jesus to do was to prove, is, was what he wanted Jesus to do was to prove that he, he actually believed he was the Son of God by having him demonstrate it. But our Lord, but Jesus didn't have to prove anything because he absolutely believed who he was and who his Father was. You weren't there when you were born. You didn't record it, like have it recorded in your mind. You, you didn't physically see it. But I'm sure you believe who your parents are, right? I do. I've always lived my whole entire life believing who my parents were. I have no doubt. Even if they weren't, though, they're still my parents. They'll always be my parents. I believe it. In a similar way, Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was because he believed it. He, and it was, not only that, but it was, reveal, it was revealed to him. Remember at the baptism, the Lord spoke from heaven and said, this is my son, you're my son. I'm pleased with you. He absolutely believed who he was and who his father was. And also, he wasn't going to argue a that the devil already knew was true. So instead of arguing, instead of debating him, instead of trying to convince him, Jesus just once again turned to, the, to God's word. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Do not test the Lord your God. You see what Jesus was doing there? He was balancing scripture with scripture to get the total expression of God's will. You see, he understood that the devil was distorting God's word to entice him to test God's loving protection. Therefore, he responded to Satan's twisting of scripture 
by rightly dividing the word of truth and using it in its proper context. The son knew what the father said and what he didn't say. And how did he know that? By spending time with him. By spending time reading, studying, listening to the whole counsel of God. He dedicated himself to really knowing what his father wanted him to know. He understood it all. And because he did, because he understood the whole counsel of God, he was able to quickly tell, immediately tell when it was being twisted, when it was being misused, and when it was being misinterpreted. This is why it's so important for us as Christians, as believers, to be good students of the Bible. Any cult, demon, or false teacher can build a case by singling out verses and using them out of context, or twist entire passages to create a false narrative. Anyone can prove almost anything from the Bible, but be completely in error if they don't take into account the entire Word of God. Let me give you an example that we see nowadays. People will use Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. They will use that verse to justify or excuse smoking marijuana recreationally. And again, I'm speaking here recreationally. But if they don't take into account, but what they don't do is take into account that it's inconsistent with what the Bible says about the Christian life. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not by the deadening of our minds. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, we're to be sober-minded about the devil's schemes, not so stoned that we don't even care. And according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, we're to be filled by the Holy Spirit, and we're not to be mastered by anything. So my point is this. If we're only listening to what God says by picking out verses here and there from the Bible, we're not living by faith. We're living by chance. We're living with the chance that maybe we're right. Hopefully we're right. And what is happening is that we're tempting the Lord. If we want to avoid falling into the trap of deceptive teachings, someone telling you, hey, you know what, you're allowed to do this, and you're allowed to do that, and come join our group because it's, you know, we have a better way. Watch out. Be careful. You don't want to fall into that kind of trap. It's important that you make sure that you balance Scripture with Scripture. It's important that you know the Father's Word, that you know God's Word. Well, after making every attempt to get Jesus to sin, the devil had nothing left in his bag of tricks. So he departed him for a time. Although he left defeated, the devil wasn't done with our Lord and would wait until the right opportunity presented itself, presented itself to pull Jesus away from the Father's will. We too must remember that Satan 
that Satan isn't constantly on the job with us. He comes and goes. He'll often strike when we're the most vulnerable. Then he goes on to other pursuits. However, each time that he attacks, after we've been strengthened by previous rejections of temptations, he becomes less and less effective. Nevertheless, we should remain watchful, especially when we're at our weakest and our most vulnerable. Pastor David Guzik said this, Satan isn't stupid. He will not continually put his limited resources in an ineffective battle. If you want Satan to leave you alone for a while, you must constantly resist him. Many are so attacked because they resist so little. Now people will often say that the temptation would have been meaningless if Jesus wasn't able to sin. But the fact is, the truth is that Jesus is God, and God cannot sin. You see, even though his deity was veiled, was veiled during his life here on earth, he never relinquished any part of it. Others have also said that God couldn't sin, but as a man, he could sin. But he's still 100% man and 100% God. And it's unthinkable to, to think that he would, could still sin today. He's still up there in heaven as fully man. You know, he didn't go up there as a spirit. The, the, all, all the witnesses saw him physically go up to heaven. He's there right now. And, and if those who say that he could still sin, uh, it's just no way could he be at the right hand of God, in the presence of God, as a sinner. Unfortunately, here's what these people are failing to see or understand. The purpose of the temptation was not, of the temptations was not to see if he would sin, but to prove that he could not sin. Only a holy, sinless man could be our Redeemer. Now, before I close, I want to share with you a few more observations from these three temptations. First of all, notice that all three temptations revolve around three of the strongest desires or drives of human existence. Physical appetite desire for power and possessions, and a desire for public recognition. As I mentioned, they appealed respectively to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Second, these temptations Jesus faced at the outset of his public ministry may be the same three temptations that will come to anyone involved or wanting to get involved in any aspect of the ministry, be it to family or to the body. Here, the first one, we have the temptation of materialism. You could be living in a nicer house, Satan will whisper. You're his child, aren't you? Don't you think that as his child, he wants you to have nice toys, expensive clothes, and eat at the finest restaurants? Don't you think he wants you to have that Lamborghini, that Rolex? Don't you think he wants these nice things for you? Secondly, the second temptation was the temptation of pragmatism. Look at all those nations, Satan says. Shouldn't they be saved? So you have to bow down to me for just a moment and look at what you'll get. Then 
Thirdly, the temptation of sensationalism. And this is what a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, if they're not careful, can be guilty of. Come and see the power of God as we jump from the temple. The evangelist beckons. Angels will surround us. The glory of God shall move among us. Healings and wonder and glory will flow through us. Materialism, pragmatism, and sensationalism. Three ways Satan will try to infect a ministry. Watch out. Be as wise as serpents in these last days in which we live. And thirdly, in all these temptations, Satan used religious language and thus clothed the temptations with a garb of outward respectability. As James Stewart points out, the study of the temptation narrative illuminates two important points. On one hand, it proves that the, that the temptation is not necessarily sin. On the other hand, the narrative illuminates the words found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now, one final observation I want you to notice is that the enemy attacked the three basic virtues of Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. Satan questioned the Father's love by tempting Jesus to, stir, to turn stones into bread. He questioned his hope when he offered Jesus the world's kingdoms this side of the cross. Satan questioned the Father's faithfulness when he asked Jesus to jump from the temple to prove that the Father would keep his promise. However, in each one of those instances, Jesus never faltered and resisted every temptation the devil threw at him by essentially telling him, nope, not today, Satan. Is that your heart? If the devil or anyone or... It, Again, the angel will, may appear as, as, a, as, as an angel of light and offer you something that totally contradicts what God wants for your life, what God's will is. Are you, will you be willing to say, nope, not today? As Christians, that should be our heart. And, and the more you learn to do that, the more you learn to say, you know what? Nope, not today, Satan. By doing that, it's going to harm my family life. By going there, it's going to cause problems. By listening to that, it's just going to get me involved into things that I don't need to get myself involved with. See, it's important that you learn now. If you haven't done so already, start saying, nope, not today, Satan. And the more you do that, as I mentioned before, his temptations become less and less effective because he knows he's going to start knowing or you're going to get used to it and he's going to start knowing, you know what, it's going to be more difficult. I've got to try something harder. But no matter how hard he tries, you know, if you just get used to that, saying that to him, he whatever he throws your way, it's going to be ineffective. Nope, not today, Satan. That should be, again, something that all of us need to know, need to understand. So important, especially in the world we live in today. We live in some really hard, difficult times, and the world is throwing all kinds of things at us. Are you willing to give up your eternal soul for just one moment of worship?
I hope your answer is no. And if you don't know, if you don't know what the right answer is because you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with the Father. You don't know what it's like to... Or you don't know the Father. Then I want to take this opportunity to invite you to know Him, to invite you to come to Him. See... As the Son of God, Jesus was sinless. And because He was sinless, and because He met all the requirements of the law, He died as a sinless man. He died. He was able to carry all of your sins upon Him on the cross. He did that for you, even though he didn't have to. He did it for you because he cares for you and loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. If you want to have a relationship with the Lord, wherever you're at, wherever you may be, close your eyes and bow your head and pray this with all sincerity. Lord God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for blowing it. Forgive me for all the wrongs that I've done, for all the people, all the, all the times I've hurt people. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I believe he's sitting with you right now at your right hand. Take my sins now from me, Lord, and, and wash me clean. I open the door to my heart to you to receive the Holy Spirit. Fill me, Lord. Make me new. I accept all that you've done, Lord. Now help me walk according to your ways all the rest of my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.